Welcome to Aw Crap, a Hellboy podcast, the show dedicated to the half-demon hero, hosted by me, Mark David Christensen, and Kate Thompson. Hey, and today we have with us an awesome guest. We have Tad Stones, veteran animator, creator of Darkwing Duck, of course, and producer of the Hellboy animated sort of storms, as well as Blood and Iron, and a third unproduced uh, one that was made, right? But Sadly, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. I, we were just saying that we appreciate and almost can't believe that you uh, <laughs> listened, <laughs> one listened, a- and then two agreed to join us here. So, yeah, we that's just really how the internet works, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it, can, it connects us. We're just casting lines yeah. out there, and, you know, you yes, bet. I have. I have just enough fans to say, have you seen this thing? You know, <laughs> I love it's just it. so cool. Um, yeah. And so we just, I mean, you initially emailed us back to kind of answer some questions about that we had had and brought up during our podcast where we were talking about uh, the Hellboy animated movies. Um, and then as I was uh, researching a little bit more about the animated movies i came across your hellboy animated blog where you kind of oh, answer God, all of yeah. these things like uh uh i and i have to say it's just a really cool blog in general that you've seemed to have kind of changed into your own art uh yeah, well, like ha- your own personal art upkeep uh, kind of thing yeah what happened was um the company, and this is in the early days of DVDs, and there were some major mistakes made or missteps in the marketing of Hellboy. Um, and I knew we were in trouble when like hardcore Hellboy fans would say, wait, there's an animated Hellboy? It's like, okay, yeah. now <laughs> that's not yeah. working. Uh, we can go into that. But the blog, blog the yeah. uh, in doing the, the movies, the company required me to do it. They said, no, this is how to promote it online. Uh, You have to, you know, we'll pay you back. You have to put it under your name so you can get it. So it's not a company thing and then we'll reimburse you for it. And it was great. So until it ended and then it's like, okay, they're not going to pay for this thing. I don't even work there anymore. And it was like, but I don't want this to go away. And so I've just kept, kept it up because it was so much fun to document as it was happening, like where we were, why we're going a certain design way, or this is what we're attempting to do, or this is, I had a blog on retakes that somebody thanked me for because they say, that's never talked about. We didn't know what that was about. Um, It's really incredible going through the, going through the different entries uh, on this blog. I, I mean, really it's such a comprehensive look at what the animation process is like. It's, it's really a cool thing that even what you turned it into with your personal work. Um, well, what happened at the great. end is I thought, guy, I have so much fun doing that, that I'm just going to keep it going with stuff I'm working on. And the first thing I worked on, I think I did some storyboards on one of the many versions of Scooby-Doo. Uh, and I said, I'd like to, you know, talk about this storyboard thing. And they said, oh, no, you can't do that until it's uh, on the air. Sure. And that's when I realized, oh, yeah, this was a great theory to do, but nothing <laughs> I was working on would allow me to actually do a blog about it, whereas before it was required. And then it it became, you know, a cobwebbed site uh, <laughs> until 
about a year ago when I said, you know, I kind of did things as I went along, little sketches or, gee, I'm thinking of these, this science fiction story or, the, or here's a comic I tried to do. There's a, you know, until uh, about a year ago, I said, I'm going to learn to paint. I always wanted to paint. I never did. I, I got paid to do a couple of paintings. Uh, right. one by Roger Corman. And <laughs> yet I never, I never took painting classes or anything like that. So I was just kind of fumbling around. I never knew anything about that. So over the year, I basically meant the blog to be a pretty much honest view of what turned out to be my insecurities and what scares me about painting, <laughs> things like that, which are stupid because these are just, you know, paintings in a little sketchbook and I'm treating them as if I'm, I'm, doing some master gallery work or something. Right. And it's like, oh, and it's just, it's basically, I just have to get over it and just do it ideally several times a week. Yeah. I mean, it's just so encouraging for it to hear because uh, as reading it, you kind of, you mentioned that same thing where you're like, I, I have, you kind of did a sketch in your book before even doing the like sketch later. And yeah. you mentioned also doing this first page, last page kind of thing where you'll, paint the same subject in the first page and about a year later paint the subject again and how to kind of document how far you've come. And it was so reassuring as a, you know, as a, like I, I do some freelance illustration and just as, as an illustrator at all, I was like kind of encouraged to see like, Oh, at every level the, you know, this man who's been working professionally for uh, however many decades, you know, like if you're working since the seventies under like great people, great teachers, and you still have kind of like trepidation about trying a new medium or, or something. Ex exactly. Like, I, I yeah. just felt that's why I was doing it. And when, as I was doing it, it's kind of like, especially on my blog, there's not a lot of people read it. Um, but sometimes I go, who am I writing this to? But I always <laughs> write it as if it's to the same audience that read the Hellboy blog or something, you know, just people who are interested in artists, writers, whoever. Well, you definitely uh, have a reader and just, now and I encourage people, oh, all of our listeners, because it's, it's, it's a very cool thing. It's, it's yeah. nice to kind of pick your brain uh, like somebody who's been doing this for a long time and it's very good. Well, it's, it's like people talk about the artists, talk about the other syndrome where it's like, I'm not... I'm not worthy. I'm going to, somebody's going to find out I'm a fraud. And, and through a basically my whole life, I've had bits of that. And then as far as my career, I started in Disney feature animation. TV animation didn't even exist for Disney back then. And then, you know, when I moved to television, in my mind, it was always like, you know, that was right at the beginning. Of, well, actually, Ron and John, uh, Ron Clemens, I used to share an office with, and John Musker, who did Little Mermaid, Aladdin, you know, Treasure Planet, Princess and Frog, Moana and Hercules, all sorts of things. Uh, they actually gave me a, a copy of Little Mermaid to read at one point. Uh, and I, next time I talked to Ron, I would say, was that helpful at all? I don't think it was helpful at all because then I was reading scripts all the time and you kind of read them and gave notes as you went through as opposed to, I realized what I should have done is, you know, <laughs> 30 years later. <laughs> You know, read the thing through as an audience and say, what are the big thing? Are they all big things working and stuff like that? As opposed to kind of lost the Jamaican accent on the crab here. You know? <laughs> uh, but anyway, they, that was the beginning of the, the new golden age being done by friends of mine. And I was working at TV and I just 
you know, felt like the ugly stepchild, which by the way, the company, as much money as we made for the company, there were meetings I've been told about that the head of features at the time, basically, if there was ever a meeting with him and, and TV, the conversation would get around to how television animation shouldn't exist because it hurts the Disney name. Oh, Whereas Michael Eisner, who, yeah, when Michael Eisner came to the company and said, yes, you got to get into TV. He said, Disney should be everywhere that there's animation and it should be the best in the field. So we expect you to do the best quality shows on television. We don't expect that to look like the features. And where that got as far as (laughs) my sense of self-worth, where that really (laughs) crashed together was when uh, I had pitched a science fiction show that I didn't even get to pitch it to Michael and, and Jeffrey because my lower boss who ran the division just didn't get it. Yeah. And whereas the rest of the staff liked it, but it's just never got past him. And instead they assigned me because of my feature background, they assigned me to do Aladdin. So there I was, it was like, oh great, I get to do the no budget rushed version of this fantastic <laughs> movie, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that's all I got to do. Uh, and, you know, for the rest of my time at Disney, because instead of I was in the slot of, you know, doing direct videos or, or features. So I always had that direct comparison. And the other thing about that is when I came to Disney in, in 1974, it was right. It was like six months after Ron Clemens, I think three months before Glenn Keane, the, you know, one of the top animators of all time. Uh, So that tells you the niche I was in. But Glenn and Ron could go to a movie theater and hear people react to what they were doing. We had ratings, you know, which were coming out way after we were out of production on that season or whatever. So it wasn't until I retired, you know, 25 years later, and I retired a little early, that I was invited to a convention as a guest where they paid my way in. It's like, well, cool. (laughs) I guess I better be drawing something to sell this table (laughs) you're giving me. (laughs) But that was the first time my first convention was MomoCon in uh, Atlanta. And I met several people who basically got misty-eyed because of how much the shows meant to them. Specifically, oh, yeah. uh, I've told this many a time, but specifically women who came from broken families or very rough family life, father issues, that sort of thing, that Goslin and Darkwing's connection had a huge difference to them. And then conventions following that, you know, I got that from men and women that this really meant a lot to them. And we we're just trying to be funny. So sure. I didn't get that audience input. and It was a little delayed. So anyway, my blog kind of puts out that psychology out there. I mean, that's fantastic. That's really what resonates with people. And I mean, it's a shame that you didn't get to hear that until so much later. But uh, I mean, I had also read that you had based that character on your daughter or somewhat on your daughter. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it was my daughter was, I forget how young she was. She was like one or two. So it was more like <laughs> what, I, what I thought she would turn out sure. uh, like. Uh, that didn't come true. Thank you. <laughs> was, Ironically, she, was she more like the, the Goslin and the... the uh, Neg- no, not that way either. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, however, ironically, my youngest granddaughter pretty much on target with Gosling. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so she may, we haven't seen her in almost a year now. Because I mean, course, except on yeah. on video, but uh, she's calmed down a little bit. But it was like, <laughs> oh yeah, bouncing off the <laughs> walls know? a little bit. 
yeah. I love <laughs> well, that's that. fantastic. I mean, uh, I think that, I mean, for me growing up in, uh, I'm a, I'm 32 now. So those were like, right in, that was my whole thing. Like yeah, I love the window. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm right in that window. So uh, yeah, I, I always say the nostalgia but... window kind of travels along <laughs> right. and I start getting more requests for like Buzz Lightyear characters now. Uh, <laughs> that's cool though. That means like they're that. all, you know, they're all yeah. resonating down the line. Well, I, a lot of my conventions I, I attended with uh, James Silvani, who drew the Darkwing Duck comics and Amy Memberson, who created the Disney Pocket Princesses online and actually has done now Disney Princess comics for Disney. Anyway, the... the they were always with me to kind of to shepherd shepherd me along. <laughs> they kind of showed me the way of the the conventions and and handling all the the people coming up. So nice. Had you been a big comic book fan growing up as a oh, as yeah. a kid yourself? Okay, great. Oh the the uh, oh I'm well basically comics were everywhere when I was a kid. I was born sure. in fifty two, last <laughs> century, and when I was growing up, it was like you went to the barber shop a lot more often, especially. With COVID. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, comics were there at the barbershop. Comics were in spinner racks. They were in the drugstore, the supermarket. They were just, it was just everywhere. And yeah. they cost a dime. And I started, I mean, people say, oh, I remember my first comic. And it's like, how can you remember your first comic? It was just like, <laughs> it was pervasive. It was like part of the atmosphere. I remember my first Marvel comic because right about the time I probably move away from comics or something. I went to a vacation at Lake Tahoe with my family and the little general store <laughs> had a spinner rack and they had these comics with a little box in the corner with a character yeah. in it. And my first Marvel comic was Tales of Suspense uh, 47, Iron Man versus the Melter. This is yeah. Iron Man in his golden suit. And yeah. Tales to Astonish 49, which was the issue where Ant-Man became Giant Man. Oh, um, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, and it, there was something about them. So the rest of vacation, I, I just picked up anything with that little box in the corner and then <laughs> went home and spread it around the neighborhood. And suddenly, every, especially two of my friends were became real collectors too. And we had Marvel characters we were and, and all of that. That's so awesome. In, a, in addition to comics I loved so early, uh, and getting in the ground floor of Marvel, my dad had wanted to be a cartoonist, uh, but he graduated college right in the depression. And it was like, no, get whatever job that's out I'd start there. Start working. Yeah. And he was not the kind of guy, especially after he had a family, but he was not the kind of guy to say, I'm going to work all day. And now at night, I'm going to draw my dream and try to get going. Because uh, I think he wanted to be a, a editorial cartoonist at first. Anyway, he had tons of art books and specifically cartooning books. And among that, it was some animation stuff. Preston Blair's uh, How to Animate, which sure. every animator has. The you Bible. Know. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I had that at a very early age and learned how to draw the goofy character, how to draw the the you know, the thug, the, the <laughs> type, you know, why babies have big heads and big eyes and little tiny noses, all design stuff we still use today. Sure. So anyway, that was ingrained in me. And then finally, the last connection that led to my career is my dad worked for Carnation Company. And they, because of the restaurants and the connection to Disney, or Disneyland, excuse me, the company picnic was at Disneyland every year. So I got to go to Disneyland in those early years regularly way more than had we just been you know a family unconnected sure um, although it was funny because we had 
basically there used to be a picnic area where in Anaheim, where Pirates of the Caribbean are now, used to just be literally a park with tables and they would pitch a wow. tent and do the, the Golden Horseshoe review. And I didn't realize the craziness of it until I was an adult. But <laughs> I do specifically remember two things about that tent. One, Wally Bogue, who is the famous entertainer of the Golden Horseshoe Review, had this famous bit where he gets hit in the face and he just <laughs> spits out teeth, which are little white beans constantly. <laughs> and that went, he did that. And then I connect that. Then they played bingo and they had bingo cards using beans. And now as an adult, I, I look back on that and think, <laughs> you're playing bingo. Disneyland is literally right over there it's like 40 yards maybe is the gate right there the most spectacular b11 grable's legs b11 and people were trying to make some money off of this bingo they couldn't make money at yes, yeah <laughs> Uh, That's and the, and the, in the early days of the parks, they had a big animation exhibit, and I bought the book, uh, which is probably behind me somewhere, The uh, Art of Animation, which was based around Sleeping Beauty, and you know, just took you through all the steps of the animation and the different kinds of animations they were doing. You know, it was a great book. And then Don Hahn, in later years, did kind of a thinner version of it a couple of times tied into specific movies. But uh, that between Disneyland and that Disney was an animation was part of me growing up. And of course, cartoons was yeah. when I was young is when Hanna-Barbera decided to do cartoons for television with Rough and Ready and and uh, those early things. And the other thing, when I was uh, through consciousness here, obviously, <laughs> sure. uh, we had, you know, in local television shows back then, you know, you had hosts. LA was a major market and not, it wasn't until, frankly, I was working in TV animation that I realized how different television markets are across the country where there are cities that only had one, even in the height of syndication, there was only one station that would play cartoons at all. In LA, we had all these channels and there were at least three channels that had four kind of, that had uh, cartoon hosts. You know, the classic thing that you like, Krusty the Clown, basically sure. uh, showing cartoons and being the host. And I love Sheriff John every, you know, when I was five years old, <laughs> going to kindergarten, watch him every day. And later on, I really, and they were black and white cartoons. I realized later that some of those were silent cartoons that they had put soundtracks to. So I was, I didn't see Gertie the Dinosaur, perhaps, but, but <laughs> you know, I, out of the inkwell, if you look up some of the earliest cartoon series and Coco the Clown and Betty Boop and Popeye, sure. and then things from Europe and Russia cut out of silhouettes, they were all just television just ate up content, you know, for kids. So I got to see all that full animation from the, and of course, Warner Brothers, they said, unlike Disney, who held everything except for the little stuff they put out in the Mickey Mouse Club, yeah. Warner's just let loose everything. So everything from Bosco and, and, you know, the earliest stuff, the earliest Merry Melodies, and of course, Bugs and Daffy and Porky and all that. So I just had all that was going through my brain until I was right for the picking. Yeah. You're fa I mean, that's just like, you're pointed in that direction. There's no yeah. way you could have avoided yeah. it. <laughs> um, and did you find uh, when working on the Hellboy animation, was that a relief for you to work on something that was, I guess, a slightly more uh, like outside of child 
like younger children's cartoons working in a different like, age range? The two high points in my career, and I left, <laughs> I left Disney. Disney, hey, check that door. See what it looks like from the outside. <laughs> um, wait, it seems to be locked. Wait, wait. Um, Don't let it hit you on the way out. Anyway, that was like 2003. And then I <laughs> right. went, went around uh, to several different studios and mostly did longer form projects, did some script writing and did some storyboarding on Bob's Burgers for first three seasons, I think. But the two high points of my career, I would say, were Darkwing Duck and Hellboy. And Darkwing, you know, you always hear that you write for yourself. And that basically when doing kids programming like that, first of all, that was before Aladdin. So the, you know, we had debates with management about the whole breaking the fourth wall thing. I remember one executive said to me, how do we have any jeopardy in this show if he can have a safe drop on him and then he walks out of it like an accordion or something. How would we even cut to the commercial? Because, you know, how could you have a cliffhanger? And I said, because I'll, he'll look scared and we'll play scary music. Sure, <laughs> yeah. That, that was enough. That's what did it. And it totally worked that he was able to carry emotional beats with Goslin, as well as being as crazy and, you know, meta at times uh, as we wanted. The, so, uh, cool. so that was, so again, you write for yourself your own entertainment, but you're thinking, well, then the goal was to be like a old Warner Brothers short with Disney heart and 22 minutes long. So that was the goal. So you were really writing for yourself because you and we all enjoyed those old cartoons. You just couldn't leave the kids behind. Right. So, I mean, you look at an episode with the, like the character Splatter Phoenix, the artist, she says some pretty existential you know, <laughs> stuff. But for a kid, it's just blah, 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 blah. You right. get the tone yeah. and the attitude. It doesn't matter. And you get a little older, you get extra gags in there. With Hellboy, it was so, I mean, I was a huge Mignola fan, but I even pitched Hellboy at Disney. So Really? Really? They didn't go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? It would have been Heckboy, I'm sure. And then have yeah. a big character on <laughs> oh, Disneyland boy. going down Main Street, you know. <laughs> I want to make you a Hellboy, you know. <laughs> Rasputin. A big Rasputin head coming down. Sure. That'll work. Back up real quick. Anyway, so you, the, you said you're a Mignola fan. So you knew Hellboy. You read the comics before oh. ever working with it. I left comics around, you know, when I went to college, there weren't comic shops. So I went to college, I had a friend who would like, you know, she would, she had a list and she would like go to the spinner rack and buy things for me. And then every once in a while she'd visit or I'd go home and something and, and get them. And it just got to be too clumsy. So I was out of comics pretty much every once in a while, get something. But when I got to TV animation, so I have, it's like after I've been at Disney I don't know, 10, 15 years or something. The, it was Jim Magon who created Tailspin and Gummy Bears with Art Vitello. And Art Vitello is a great director and, and a huge comic book guy. They said, hey, do you want to come to the comic book shop you know, with us? Back then it was on Thursdays. And it was like, mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what is this comic book shop? <laughs> you know? And I went and it was like the perfect time because soon after we started going, out came Camelot 3000, The Dark Knight, Watchmen. I mean, we would buy Watchmen, race back to the studio, and everybody would go in their offices and, be gone, <laughs> and then come out and they'd say, okay, what did you think this and that? And that you know, um, I so, that. I mean, that was great. And pretty much I was in it until, <laughs> until that 
year and a half when I couldn't get a job. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, hell, so I was very much when Hellboy came along. I mean, I was I read that first story, which was John Byrne and, and Mike Mignola, because uh, Mike, speaking of lack of self-confidence, you know, did, couldn't didn't think he could handle the dialogue he needed. So John Byrne basically, you know, worked with him. And it was a short piece in, well, actually, those are the, some of the earliest issue in, in the, the Frogs, you know, saga. But uh, no, it was a little uh, in, what was his comic? It was The Next Men, I think. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah they, they basically went into the sewers and there's like, I don't know what it was, six or nine pages of Hellboy drawn by Mike suddenly in the <laughs> middle of this other comic. Yeah. So, I mean, I had that one and then, you know, followed it from there. And in fact, the, um, there was a Hellboy.com bulletin board that I was a big part of that. Constantly, we did art exchanges at Christmas time. And some of those people I got to know so well that I, they ended up staying at my house on the way down to <laughs> San Diego Comic Con, you know. I and love it. We went up in, in Vancouver and stayed with a couple of uh, the guys. And, you know, they're close friends, you know, even still. So I did, I did get that thing when we were finally doing the Hellboy movies. You go to a convention, you know, every... Every time you see a movie uh, based on a comic of some sort, you know, the director will say, oh, I was a fan from way back. And now it's probably more true than it was. But there was that time where, oh, I was a big fan. And it's like, yeah, when you got the job, you read the comics kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But for me, it was like, yeah, real, a, a real Fantastic. deal. When I left Disney, I needed sample scripts because I had run shows. I hadn't, and I rewrote episodes. I wrote constant scripts, but I didn't have anything just of my own to show. So I asked Mike, because I work with Mike on the Atlantis series, which was closed down on Friday the 13th. Uh, the, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I had to, it was, I could tell stories about that one, but, <laughs> but that was Atlantis. That's when I started working with Mike. I got to know him on the Atlantis series and Mike would design monsters for us. At first he wrote the scripts and he said, wow, this is pretty spooky stuff. Because basically my position was, I'm never going to get a chance to do Hellboy. So I'm going to turn Atlantis into my Hellboy in terms of stories and moods and things like that. And we did like three or four. We wrote a lot. And by the time we stopped writing on it, we saw the writing on the wall. We were getting heavier notes. And I remember saying to a writer, I don't even know what show I'm doing anymore. Because we were really trying to be this kind of a PG show that was spooky, pulp adventure and all of that. and and our current boss, the one who showed me that door eventually. <laughs> oh, no. And then they showed him the door, so it wasn't so bad. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, you know, the, the, he just didn't get the show. And then when Atlantis came out and it wasn't an instant hit, that was the excuse that ABC, who didn't want the show, right. because they were doing one Saturday morning, which was all this kind of quasi-educational stuff, you know, Pepper Ann recess. It was not quite the fit with suddenly this. Sure. It's know, like this moody thing. Adventure but, thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of being forced on them. And as soon as the movie count didn't do well, they said, that's it. And, yeah. and sadly, the artists, the writers were way ahead because you write so many scripts. We started early. We had so many outlines and then we had premises. So we were like in the 30s of wow. our episodes, at least in premise form, you know. When this happened, the artists were only in like the first eight scripts. And they were going like, this is going to be the best thing we've ever done. You know, they were just so into it. And I got the call that 
the show's going to be closing down. And uh, the executive in charge said, I, I don't want them to, I want to be there to tell them. And he yeah. couldn't be there till 10 o'clock. And the stupid thing I did the next morning is I told the directors and I told my story editors, I kind of usually had an open door policy and my doors closed a lot of the time. It just <laughs> went out a few times and everybody knew that this guy was coming over. And what we found out later, I should have just said, given the announcement, he's coming over uh, to speak to us. Something's up. It may not be good. I should have said something like that, but instead the silence, I, found out later that people reacting to the scripts they were seeing, said, do you think we'll get bonuses? Do you think they're seeing oh, this? No. Is this going to be great? And they oh. went from that to 80 people being laid off yeah, by really. the 13th. Yeah. We were at least allowed to piece some of that together into a supposed sequel to Atlantis, which was really the pilot to the show. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When you, <laughs> when you run out of Hellboy stuff, you can. I'm a huge, I'm a huge, I'm a huge, I need to watch the sequel, but I am a huge Atlantis, the first, the lost empire. Yeah. I'm a huge fan. Well, again, of it's to tell, I mean, it's three separate stories and we were told we could do some connective tissue. The executive thought we'd do like five minutes. Instead, we did like 15 minutes to try <laughs> to really connect it together. Anyway, it, it was a cool movie, but the, getting back to the original question of, it was the neat thing about Hellboy was I didn't worry about the audience. I was taking Hellboy and putting him in animation. So whatever rules and stuff, I was taking them off of Mike. Now, Mike always calls, Hell, the real Hellboy is Mike's comics, period. Or, you know, There's Guillermo's Hellboys, and he talks about the animation being Tad's Hellboy. And then there's you know, the, the later ones, the live action ones, because they really, everybody interprets it in a different way. Although my intent was to get as close to the comics as I could because uh, I felt Guillermo had made Hellboy a kind of a hormonal teenager type, you know, whereas I always said, no, that's the guy everybody counts on. He is the rock of the BPRD. Yeah. Uh, and that's how I was going to the point where when Ron Perlman came into the voice, he took issue with the lines and wow. how it was going. Whoa. Luckily, I had Mike Mignola on the couch behind me. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike was able to say, no, this is slightly, you know, this is fine. This is how we're doing it. So, you know, God, yeah. thank goodness he was at that recording. <laughs> right. um, but the fun of it, unlike Scooby-Doo, where you telegraph oh we're going into a haunted house i'm scared scooby yeah. and here's the knocking knees it's like no we're going into a house and i'm going to make you understand that it's haunted and you know i'm really proud of the and you guys mentioned a couple of places the um uh handprints on the glass wall Ooh, was mine so, yeah. i just i just i knew that would work and the whole kitchen sequence the spinning knives the spinning oh, knife yeah. it that was, I was like, this is truly a scary thing. I, it was very effective. Yeah. And just to me, I loved Hellboy's. To me, that was very much Hellboy in that uh, he's just walking. He's just dragging his hand along the kitchen counter. And that's literally in the script too. And just, and finally, it's like, I know you're here. He's like, quit screwing around basically. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a real release that basically the first, a lot of early Hellboy uh, he had the first, how, how many parts was it? Four parts, whatever, you know, what ultimately was the Seed of Evil graphic novel. But then a lot of that in that time, he, there were little Hellboy short stories 
Yeah. And that like heads and pancakes and and sometimes they were just a couple of pages long. Other times they were, you know, longer than, you know, an eight pager or something. And so our first movie was kind of the tribute to that kind of short stories. And when I sat down at Mike's house and we said, well, what, what's going to be our first story? I said, well, I've, you know, I'm looking into all sorts of mythology. I said, well, we've got Scandinavian stuff. And I said, we have Japanese stuff. And Mike instantly, because he knew that a lot of, Japanese supernatural stories are just so weird. And he had done that one. So he knew was aware of all sorts of things like that. By the way, this is a thing I do. <laughs> Whereas I tend to talk about things I'm dissatisfied by where yeah. people tend to like these things. I should just admit that. But uh, <laughs> I think the, the connective story was, was kind of weak where it was just an excuse to tell these basically the Hellboy's journey. I mean, Mike actually, you know, later on was going to have after Hellboy died. And actually, it was kind of some of his thoughts, I think, at the beginning, you'll have to interview him someday. <laughs> anyway, the idea, here's this guy who's just going to wander around and get into trouble of the supernatural sort that, that it kind of, he runs into it. And that was kind of what was happening. But we had this connective story. And it's almost like that connective thing should have been weaker, or less or more cohesive. But Here's the thing on the Hellboy projects, and uh, this isn't an excuse as much as, hey, it was the reality. Time and budget, three days, and I was at a brand new studio. Manager comes in and said, or the head of production says, I have to take a week to get this thing done on time. We got to take a week out of your script schedule. And I was like, because wow. I'd gone from being the veteran of Disney TV to um, the new kid. And it's like, okay. And he leaves, I'm thinking. So I just lost a week of script on the movie that we don't even have a premise for yet. This right. is before my conversation with Mike. <laughs> oh my God. So it was kind of like, and they had had some other direct-to-video projects that really got into trouble for that exact reason, you know, where they just... They worried about the production and they weren't thinking about the script as opposed right. to the right way to do things is don't go into production until you get the script's right. Yeah. Then the second one, they overlapped in production. So there was no real learning curve. It was just like I had two different directors, uh, Phil Weinstein and Vic Cook. And so we knew, you know, and we all knew the, the characters. We all knew the comics. It wasn't until the the the... First was about the short stories. The second one is kind of like Hellboy's origins, not literally, but it's that Central European vampires, werewolves, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then the third one, which was written, <laughs> unproduced, <laughs> The Phantom Claw, that would have been the mad scientists slash Nazis, floating wow. heads in jars, cyber apes, the crazy pulp side of Hellboy. And we really did feel that was our best script. And it did tell our origin of Hellboy, which was slightly different. It, it, the professor was a more active part of it. Lobster John, Johnson was a little bit in it too. He was definitely in the movie, but actually in the origin, he was, he was there. Interesting. Which basically, that's what, well, it was when the, in the, in his actual origin, they have the character, um, the Torch of Freedom or the, Something, something like that. That seems a lot. Torch of I couldn't reach Torch right of over here. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, anyway, and that's <laughs> basically the Lobster Johnson kind of. We had that role in for him. Oh, cool. But the anyway, that's the interesting. What a shame. So that would have been the third one, and and ideally we would have done like seven of these, like once a year, as we 
we went forward. But again, that was the fun is like, no, I want to write a scary movie in animation. And sometimes it was challenging in the, I know it was a consternation to some of you, but I stole it from Memento, the idea of we're going to tell this chunk of the movie in reverse. And it's like, yeah, it may be a little confusing the first time, but hopefully being a video that you own, you're going to go back and watch it again and then go, oh, yeah, this is where that comes in yeah. all that. We, you know, maybe we should have pushed together. the art direction more, but, but I just felt that one, even as rushed as it was, was definitely a step forward of, of the first one. And then with the third one, we had seen the finished animation. It's like, okay, we know what works and we know what doesn't work, you know, what we can really make you know, a lot out of, but those are, that it was just fantastic project. And Mike, working with Mike is, you know, one of the most creative people I've ever worked with. The, um, <laughs> it's like, he doesn't drive. And uh, when the studios want to talk to him, they'll send a car. And it's like in the ride from Manhattan beach to Culver city or the Valley, wherever the meeting is, <laughs> Mike will have ideas that could you know, be four or five feature films. You know, go. <laughs> wow. I mean, one of the things I did, I had to do a movie of Turok, Son of Stone. And the, they already had a script. The company had the rights to classic Turok because at the time Turok was a big video game, yeah, which I, was a science fiction thing. And the dinosaurs had the dinosaurs. cybernetics to them. Yeah. And for me, it was, you know, and they only, so we had to go back to the basics and the script was, it was very much, in some, when we first got there, kind of dinosaur adjacent. It was more about the <laughs> battle between these, these Native American brothers and you killed my father or you did this. Or, you know, it was a lot of that very heavy and, and, and some of it worked fine. But I said to Mike that, you know, to me, Turok is basically these guys who, you know, he and his little sidekick would go into his, this valley and dip their arrows in poison berries and shot dinosaurs. Yeah. And Mike said, <laughs> yeah. Mike said, no, Turok is about the two guys who go into the valley, dip their arrows into poison berries, and then shoot the T-Rex, and then skin it and use its leathery skin to make boots so they can walk across lava. <laughs> it's like, I'm pretty sure that was never in a comic, but I want to <laughs> see Mike Mignola. Turok, son of stone. Uh, wow. That's how his, and that really taught me something that I used later on in all sorts of humor wise and adventure wise and things I pitched to go, no, go that extra route, go bigger, try to go with the, the big grand idea or the big visual. Even on Darkwing, which was heavily influenced by Silver Age comics, because that's, you guys are way too young, but Silver Age comics were. Stupid. I mean, it was like <laughs> Jimmy Olsen turning into a giant turtle man. You know, sure. they did a story where Superman became super evolved and lost his hair and became this later done by big brain guy. McCallum on uh, Outer <laughs> Limits, but he can't have a big brain guy. And then they did it with Lois Lane. They did it with The Flash. It's like they did it with everybody because that why waste a good story? Yeah. Uh, or Superman's like that, eating a bunch of pies or he's just... Yeah, it was, it was right. that kind of silliness. <laughs> and especially Flash had these great covers. And thank goodness there was no internet because if I could actually look up the stories instead of kind of remembering them, then I would have, you know, I couldn't, I would have been self-conscious about using those ideas at all sure. because it's like, well, that's, I'm stealing ideas. Whereas I remember Flash had a, <laughs> he was turned into a marionette 
You know, I remember that cover, which I wish I had remembered at the time because I'm sure we could have done Darkwing puppets. But uh, it was that sort of thing that I I told my story editors, look, always pitch me the comic book cover. Cool. The idea is animation's a visual medium. And if your central idea is a visual idea, we're on good, solid ground. Now, we didn't nice. always do that, but that was the thought behind it. But once we really got into the characters and some stuff was you know, Batman had gotten, you know, Batman in those days, it was in the 80s, was gotten into his darker period. And there was Frank Miller toyed around with the idea that Robin's dressed all brightly colored <laughs> to be a target so that basically he can sneak around and beat the bad guys. <laughs> but just the idea, and I don't think it was him necessarily, but some of the writers played with the idea of Robin softened Batman that he needed it. Cause you know, when you're out there fighting crime, what do you need? I need an eight year old sidekick, right. <laughs> eight year old kid yeah. in short pants. I'll show the guys. Get in the way. Yes. That's cool that you bring anyway, that up because yeah. I, re I revisited two episodes of Darkwing Duck before we started recording. And it was, I, I rewatched the one where he, he goes into the negaverse and then I also watched Time and Time and Punishment, which yeah. felt to me like a total fun commentary and a take on the Dark Knight Returns, but with Dark. It was Duck. because it was like, that. what would Darkwing? I took that idea and said, what would Darkwing be without Goslin? And that was a fun thing. Now, recently, Frank Aragonis, who is the uh, co-producer and and head story editor of uh, the New Ducktales. He said, uh, okay, you've got this episode where this guy dressed in purple, you know, becomes a dictator and is ruling society. Why wasn't it called Purple Rain? R-E-I-G-N. <laughs> and it was like, although later on I talked to Frank and I said, well, actually it was based on crime and punishment and storyline. It makes a lot more sense. <laughs> but anyway, inspiration is everywhere. You but no, that's, the, that's the kind of things we played. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was the fun of Darkwing and the fun of Hellboy. It's two totally different things. You know, I, my favorite Darkwing episodes were the ones where we played with the reality of one of my favorite is card comic book classics, which there, somebody is writing a comic book and we're seeing that adventure. And yet you're also seeing depending on who's writing the comic, the adventure changes to the extent where somebody puts a coffee cup down on the comic page and suddenly Darkwing and Launchpad run into a giant coffee cup. I was like our version of Duck Amok. It was, I love those things, Splatter Phoenix, where we brush with oblivion, I guess it's called. I only know these titles when fans <laughs> I have not gone back and watched the episodes because I only see the bad parts. Um, anyway, just the idea of d diving into paintings and doing different things like that were, were a lot of fun. Twin, Twin Beaks was a great episode that we based on. Twin. You know, that was so much fun. Hellboy was fun, too. You find yourself writing these titles first and then you go in, you're like, I have a fun <laughs> title. That one was an easy, you know, thing. And the, sure. it was Jan Stranod, who's a science fiction, fantasy, and comic book writer. He, uh, he's the one who pitched it. And I said, Jan, this only works if, you know, since our audience is probably not staying up at night. And if sure. they are, they're not watching Twin Peaks. It has to work if you've never seen the episode. Mm -hmm. And he did an outline and it was just references to logs and cherry pie and, and somebody wrapped in plastic. And I said, you can't, you can't do it. It's got to be more to this. And I realized I couldn't, I couldn't give him 
notes because I said, no matter who does this or what we do, it's just going to constantly go back and forth until you've convinced me. So I just, you know, did it. And uh, I, one of the writers on staff had never seen Twin Peaks and he just loved the feeling of the script. Great. And that I relaxed after that, <laughs> but we were so excited about, it. we knew it was something different. It's like, we got to think of other shows that, you know, we could kind of have the same kind of fun with through Darkwing's eyes, but you have to do the stories that are in front of you because our schedule is so crazy that you couldn't just brainstorm unless the story editors were doing it on their own. It was like, that's not the story that's been pitched to me. You know, this one, let's make yeah. this as funny as we can, as opposed to waiting for the others. But that's why I envy the, the writers on the new DuckTales. When I first visited, they said, how big was your writer's room? I went, writer's room? What are you talking about? It was me in an office. People would come in and we'd yell at each other back and forth until we came up with something. And, you know, that was it. The idea that they can plan a whole season ahead and they've got yeah. index cards and whiteboards and all of that. It's just like, man, we would have been really dangerous. With Darkwing Duck, was a lot of it, um, did it feel like a lot of storyboarding as opposed to like writing on a, like a, a non-animated scripted No, show? it was, it was very much, pretty much everything was in the script, but okay. especially in the early days when the storyboard guys tried to add stuff they thought anything goes, and it's like, that's not true. You got to be on story point, stuff like that. And then everybody got it, and they certainly added a lot. But what the storyboard guys really did was sell the action and the gags and the emotion when required. So it wasn't that they did add bunches, but it was really making all that stuff work and pushing Selling it way it. beyond the script. Yeah, Kevin Hopps, one of my story editors I always like to work with on, on various episodes, you know, he would eagerly cut lines to make room for a visual gag if, you know, they'd come up on that. He was all for that. Were there, I had some other writers who were more precious than that. So I usually <laughs> stood in the middle. Anyway, that was, that was that sort of thing. But I guess it's like you say, it is a visual medium first and foremost. I guess that's yeah. the, that's the striking part of it. But there was no time, there was no time that we had to do a storyboard show as, as became possible in later things at Cartoon Network and Nick and where, okay, writer's going to do a quick outline and then kind of like the Marvel method of writing comics, sure. you know, which isn't much used anymore, I guess. But, you know, where it's just like, well, here's what's going to be on this page. This is what, and then Jack, you, uh, you fill in some sort of space battle <laughs> and, you know, that sort of thing. We didn't have time because we just had to hit deadlines uh you know constantly and it was like i remember talking to you know friends at warner brothers when they were doing animaniacs and and had done tiny tunes and they said yeah we generally throw out like three scripts a season or whatever it was and it went you get to throw out scripts <laughs> the idea that you would be in a position where you know what this isn't up to snuff let we're just not going to do it it was like <laughs> you know it's like later on, you know, we're doing Buzz Lightyear Star Command. I don't think John Laster, I mean, I knew John, but, you know, he, I'm sure he wasn't pleased with the show because it's kind of disappeared. Hopefully it'll come back on uh, Disney+. Plus. You know, we were doing a different kind of show than what he wanted the mythical Buzz Lightyear show to be. And you see it at the beginning of, of a couple of the movies where it starts with, a. I think the second one starts with a Buzz Lightyear cartoon. Mm -hmm. yeah see all CG, but you see what an adventure is. And it's like, yeah, it's incredible. And it's like, yeah. And how long did you take to 
storyboard and finesse and record and do that seven minutes? You know, and the answer would be, I don't know, three, four more months. And it's like, you know what? We get to the end of the week and something's not quite working. It's like, okay, here you go. And it's <laughs> in production, you know? And you, yeah. you say, watch that. Here's, I mean, you hand it out to the director and say, this isn't quite working. Really think about this. You have plenty of leeway to, you know, you do what you can. And Vic Cook, I always said, was, because uh, he worked in story on, on uh, Darkwing Duck and then, you know, work with me on, on Aladdin and, and some of the adventure shows. I always said as a director, he would be like, because we used to ship shows, literally. Artwork would go into boxes, taped up and sent overseas. In fact, we lost an episode of, I think, oh, Rescue no. or Darkwing. And, you know, Ooh. they had copies of a lot of the stuff, but they had to basically rebuild Redraw. the ship. Oh, shipment. my gosh. Anyway, I always said that Vic would be like, making storyboard corrections as they're trying to put the tape <laughs> on the box and his hands are in their box. So, I don't know. It was great. I mean, what I loved about working in animation was working with the talented uh, writers and artists. You know, it was the crews that really made the experience, you know. I mean, I really love storytelling with, you know, I kind of co-wrote all the Hellboy scripts, although the writers definitely took the lead. Except for the, the last one, you know, was mine. Uh, that no one will ever read. But that was, I mean, I really enjoyed that. Do you Pardon think me? you'll ever, I, I was thinking about that, that script's just sitting there and there is like a huge audience that like me and Kate, and I know several of our listeners would love to like, would you ever consider, or is there even a possibility legally to publish it? To put it out in um, the world. I think, let's put it this way. I think I have a copy of it. <laughs> it's like so, so many computers, so many computers and word processors ago that it's like, does that exist? But no, Mike said, it's one of the things he said at the end. He says, just never put this online. You know, that's, that's, it. It. that's it. It's yeah. just and LG. really it is, it is written to be a thing. It's not, you know, it's, it's a script for a movie that was never made. Right. So yeah, if somebody wanted to take a creative project or, oh, let's do a book that's illustrated with storyboards and concept art and stuff like that that doesn't exist mm -hmm. to create it for the book. Well, that would be really expensive to do for a book or just for a script. So, I mean, I don't think, and then legally, God, Revolution yeah. Studios had a piece of that and yeah. Cartoon Network and, you know, oh, that, here's a, another point. Uh, you guys said these, Oh, this was one of the questions I answered, that these yeah. things feel like a pilot for a series. And no, they're the opposite, because originally Hellboy was going to be a series on Cartoon Network, but they never could come to a deal. Cartoon Network says, no, we should get, we're, the, we're important because we're actually putting it on the air, so we should get this much. And it's like, no, we own the rights. We should get this much. And, you know, yeah, that kind of legal stuff. So it was at a San Diego Comic-Con. And by this time, Mike and I had worked together and had things like okay we'll do you know we know we're doing this many episodes then that means we can do like seven that we're gonna have you know we're gonna be Abe sapien stories and we're gonna have lobster johnson in at least eight you know but in little pieces and then here we'll have an excuse to do an actual episode wow. you know so there was enough characters that you know ideas would be really easy to come once you divide it up that way it's like it's really cool to, to get the various stuff. So that was the mindset we were on. And then at a San Diego Comic Con, I was standing at his table when the guys come up and, and say, okay, we have good news, bad news. Bad yeah. news is we're not doing the Hellboy series. 
Instead, we're doing a series of movies. And it was this weird thing. I remember Mike saying like, well, I guess that's good news. And it just (laughs) took us, it just took us a while because we were so deep mentally Again, we're we're doing this stuff. You're already seeing the episodes in your head. Of you're course. you're getting images that way. So they're starting to exist, you know, like ectoplasm, you know, yeah. coming out of our noses and making clouds <laughs> of our heads. <laughs> but it's, you know, and then you realize, oh, this is much better to do a series of movies. Cause Mike oh, you know, said to me he'd be most comfortable instead of big budget Hellboy movies. He kind of saw him like uh the old Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies where it's, you know, basically it's like, here's this guy who's, but instead of solving this mystery, it's this, you know, this guy who's in a chair and this jellyfish thing is coming out and floating over his head and uh, blood is dripping down the walls and it's up to Hellboy (laughs) to figure it out. And that, you know, that would have been cool. (laughs) But, but when they suddenly we did a, you know, to do a series of movies like that, live action or animation, it's just, you know, one and dones that you could carry mm-hmm. some continuity to them to build to a like if you knew we're only doing ten, then you yeah. could really much like now it's commonplace in an animated series to have episode arcs. I mean not just episode arcs, season arcs and then a series arc, you know. But back mm-hmm. then just to seed things or not, you know, and to um just have that, you know, that kind of long term uh, but again, always fighting budget on things and things like that. Right. Seriously, don't listen to the director's commentary on the second one. I had a friend who, Mike, <laughs> Mike had never seen it. He had seen the first one when we then recorded a commentary, but the second one, he's actually seeing it. It's like doing Ooh. a YouTube <laughs> commentary. Wow. So he starts talking and then he starts getting quiet and it's not because he's not necessarily liking it it's because he's watching it (laughs) (laughs) how annoying is it to try to watch a movie of your own creation where somebody's just yammering to the side Um, but i but the writer kevin hops again actually was the writer on the second one and he said yeah i thought the movie was really good well until i heard the commentary learned what a piece of crap it was you know because <laughs> <No. laughs> I always I same way I've kind of done here it's like oh when I did that I just wish the knives after they were spinning around I never liked the way they drew the floating skulls over the heads you know yeah. you know you hear too much of that so as an uh you know I think any artist is kind of guilty of that looking at their own thing and being too self-deprecating when it's like well, you especially said, all these other people enjoy it yeah, it's it's not like I started with, you know, in limited animation. I started in full feature length, you know, animated yeah. features. I have one animated scene in the original Rescuers. Cool. The, uh, anyway, scene? so that's the thing. That it's uh, Bernard Mouse tiptoeing across um, Madame Medusa's desk. And I then love it. Turning around and looking up at a cuckoo clock. Awesome. <laughs> even then it was like I did it really rough and just yeah. there were things like you're supposed to clean up and put it on model is what the follow the cleanup person would do it but it went to this guy who's you know one of the old guys who didn't think any of us young punk should be there anyway. oh <laughs> um, but it's kind of like they did tightening it up instead of actually seeing it. and it's fine too Sure. <laughs> generic eye, but it always bugged me. Oh, I would have done it more. But uh, anyway, that was 
that was that. Did you guys get any questions from people we, online? We we generally got, we only got, one was very much, no. <laughs> it's, it's sad. <laughs> uh, we had one, which I think you sort of covered, uh, Grace underscore DNG27. She just wanted to know, and I think she was talking specifically to Darkwing Duck. And I think you sort of answered, but maybe you can give even more clarification for her sake. She just says, how long does an episode take to nor- to make normally? And then she just wanted to know which was your favorite to work work on. You know what? I can't remember the actual schedules. Yeah, I, mean, I would assume. Because I work with so many things. And, and now it is, as of next year, it'll be 30 years for Darkwing. Uh, I know that I found the script schedule uh, in a file that I was cleaning out. And it was... I. I sent it to Frank Aragonis and he says, I'm putting this up on the wall. Next time the writers come in and complain, I'm just going to point to it because it was like script do the first week, two scripts do the second week, one wow. script do the third week, two, one, two, one, like that. It was and just these are 22 minute insane. episodes, not like yeah. not individual 11 minute. No, like, no, it was, it's it was the full, full thing. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the idea of going back in and, and finessing something is just like, you know, it's painful because I watch, yeah, you watch shows, well, God, the, the, the new version of Darkwing is fantastic. And, and how they've, people said, why isn't Darkwing get an origin? I say, what do you mean? I gave him six origins. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the idea was that Darkwing doesn't have superpowers. He's, he's not some rich guy with a mansion. So what's he going to do? Is this going to be he decides to fight crime and he needs a symbol to fight crime and a duck crashes through the window and he goes, that's right. it. I shall become a... Oh, wait. No, it's a, there's no origin there. That's why bill. that... Exactly. The, that, that's why the story was about the building of this family. And that's why I knew the new DuckTales guys had it because that's I was great. talking about Goslin because she's like my favorite character. She And I, I just felt she was... Well, it is. She was the reason the show sold within Disney until we had her. He says, no, no, Dad, we understand. There is no Darkwing. It's the story of, you know, the story of a father and a daughter and a launch pad. (laughs) 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 And when he said that, I said, okay, he's got it. (laughs) But because they are the, they are very continuity based. You know, I know ideas that they want to do with Darkwing ideally in his own show uh that would be wonderful if they got a chance to do it but it's just like how they want to introduce things character arcs of secondary characters villains and things like that that it was just like i I couldn't have been in better hands than working with those guys that's awesome i know you said um i've heard you say that the uh kurt russell's character in big trouble in little china was sort of a, an inspiration for Launchpad. Yeah, it was Jim Magon who had, I mean, DuckTales, I, up until a couple of years ago when I found something again in my files, I would have sworn that I gave notes on DuckTales, but I never actually worked on it. And then here's a publicity re- release of a Valentine's special and Lynn Yuley, uh, one of our main writers in, on many of my shows and still working in animation today, has was interviewed for this publicity release and he goes on and on about this wonderful story editor tad stones that he worked with <laughs> it was like, 
Okay, I guess I at least did one episode. Oh, sure. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I wasn't part of that. I was I was part of it in that I was in discussions. I gave notes, but not everyone. And it really was the team on DuckTales. And, and Jim was the more Carl Barks oriented. And Ken Kuntz, David Weimers was a writing team. They very much were. And the other story editors were Patsy Cameron, Ted and Nasty, who came from the Smurfs, the number one show at the time. And they brought a little more silliness and, and punniness to things. And I've always said, even though I prefer Carl Barks adventure, I said to the audience, it's that combination that's making yeah. a huge hit. You can't say, oh, we should have done more episodes like that. Maybe, maybe it would have been better, but you know, it's a, it would have been a different mix. So I wasn't part of the creation of the detail of that, but it was Jim Megan who made that connection with uh, Kurt Russell. The, specifically, he oh, talked okay. about the scene where he shows up at one of the fights with a machine gun and he, sh and he shoots it in the air <laughs> to get their attention and is instantly knocked out by <laughs> falling plaster. He said, that's launch pad. So. <laughs> I mean, there, That's great. when I got, when I, my version of Launchpad was a much better pilot, much stupider. And in the <laughs> new DuckTales, they, their version of Launchpad is dumber than any of the Launchpads <laughs> and a worse pilot than any of the Launchpads. So there are definitely three different Launchpads there. <laughs> oh, and I also wanted to mention, I saw on your Twitter that you're doing uh, Christmas charity auctions with original work. Yes. That was such a great idea. If you want, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I've done it three years now, maybe four. I started doing, uh, there's just a, a very small charity started by a single family. And uh, to get a little sad here, basically homeless families are, I've, learned to call them houseless families because they still be home even though it's in the backseat of a car. But it's like the first time they did it, they were telling me these stories, they basically put on a Christmas event where the family gets a whole meal in a restaurant, the family eats together, and then the kids get a wrapped present, not a, you know, a, a party favor kind of present, but a real like, hey, I got a, you know, Star Wars figure or land speeder or something and the family gets a big basket of su supplies and it really didn't get to me until i was two stories i'll tell them both one is that a woman came up and thanked the guy who's running and said this is the first time this year that i didn't have to decide which kid got to eat that day that the entire family got to eat together the other story, less sad, more inspiring, was he had a friend in the same area opening up a new restaurant. And they have that period in restaurants where they're basically not officially open, but they have to get the crew up and running and the waiters and the waitresses and the cook and just get people, you know, ironing out the kinks. And there was this big, long wait talking to, you know, and, the, the, uh, and he was kind of texting his friend, kind of making a joke saying, oh, I got to wait so long. Are you that famous already? That kind of thing. And the assistant manager came out with, came out to talk to him, a young kid. And uh, he was saying, no, no, I was just kidding him. You know, I put on a big event here, you know, every year. They've been doing it for a while now, every year. And I know what it's like to deal with the mall and all that. And the guy just stops and looks at him and said, the Christmas event? And he said, yeah, with all that we, we ate and met Santa Claus. He said, yeah. He said, I was one of those kids. He says, I, we came in, we ate at the restaurant. And that's when I looked at how it was running. 
And that got to me. I wanted to work in a restaurant business then. Wow. So it was like, here is this, you know, you think like, oh, I'm feeding somebody for a day. I'm making it in the air. It's like this major validation of how much this means. So I did a couple of years ago, I started just doing, because again, when I started appearing at conventions, I, you know, I started out as an artist, moved into story, ran shows, always was drawing, but they were in the form of notes and, and, you know, character designs that I would then give somebody more talented than I am <laughs> to make it a really cool Derek character. And I had to, they were saying, oh yeah, we'll put you up in a hotel. You'll have this and, and transportation's free and we'll give you a table. And it's like, well, Disney owns all my characters. I can't make prints of right. Disney characters, but I could probably draw a getaway with just drawing my versions, you know, original art. So I got a lot of practice. I got kitted online by my crew saying, wow, you're drawing them a lot better. I said, yeah, maybe I should have done that 25 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> anyway, I said, so there's, and I, you know, I was selling them for, I couldn't believe, you know, what I was getting for them, but I did a couple auction. And then what really took off is two years ago, I do it as a blind auction. So it's, you know, I put up a piece of artwork. I say, here's the minimum bid, never goes for minimum. And then you have five days to bid on it. And it doesn't yeah. matter if you didn't hear about it till day four, you bid, you don't know what anybody is bidding. All you can do is like, this is worth this much money to me to have this little piece. And it's worked out fantastic. Crazily, in one case, I had an artist in Spain who had asked me about, do you do commissions? At the time, I never did commissions. And he yeah. said, I'd want, I said, but what would you like? And he said, well, this kind of a piece, it would, it's for my adult daughter, it would mean so much and stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, I'm doing this auction coming up, you know, we'll see. Well, I did a piece that fit his description. And he ended up bidding $800 on it. Wow. So there are people who like got back in the auction and then they got a little nervous. They said, I'm going to raise my bid by $50. <laughs> and it was like, great. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, you ain't anywhere close. You know? <laughs> but those are the oddities. But it is a way, to, it's, just, it's just a worthwhile charity. There's no overhead. It's literally this one family and, and all these volunteers. And hopefully they can carry it off this year if there's a huge COVID thing still good chance of, I assume. They've yeah. got alternate plans that they would do something, but all that money is going right to the kids. It's just like, there was a Christmas tree lot that would donate all the Christmas trees that they used to decorate the, the area outside the restaurant with. Well, it was in Oregon. Those trees are all <laughs> oh my ash God. now. You know? So it was kind of like, oh, is this year going to happen or not? So Anyway, if you go to my Facebook page or my Twitter, it's always under Tad Stones in one form or another, or even Instagram. You'll see the pieces I put up. You'll see, you know, I'll explain the link. Facebook yeah. is just because it's easier to write long paragraphs. Mm -hmm. I explain it every time I post something. So it just started this week and it's going great. So they're very I'm cool. I'm hoping to really get some stuff going. Yeah. I hope oh, yeah. so too. I, that's so, it's just so wonderful. It's a, I was reading the little bit that you had posted about it this year and yeah, what a great idea. And the art is very cool. You're, you're, you're too hard on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you I will say that <laughs> there was an, an artist who said, Hey, can I, I'd love to be part of this. Can I, can I put in my art? I said, look, anybody can. I yeah. said this last year. I don't know that anybody did. I said, you just link to this. If they have a GoFundMe page, 
which is what this charity has. You don't touch any money. You don't have to worry about tax things. You just arrange it however you want. When you see the donation, you contact the person you say you're the winner or, or you contact the person you say you've won, you have the highest bid. They make the donation. When you see the donation, you get the information and send them the artwork. I said, anybody can do it, whether it's this charity or, I mean, this is local to this group of, of shelters that are in the, I think, San Fernando, Santa Clarita Valley. If you're in some other place in the world or the United States, you know, with your far reaching audience, I'm sure (laughs) there's an artist come this, this time of year that you can easily do if there's you have any sort of following at all people who like your artwork or your crochet work or your you know whatever that's something you can do that 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 can help out you know it's it, i found out that just little bits go a long long way so absolutely urge everyone especially this year because it's obviously hard on people yeah. being out of work and and for reasons that they have no control over of course that's great that's fantastic yeah thank you so much for yeah bringing that to everyone's attention how simple it actually is yeah yeah to kind of contribute in in whatever yeah. way you can the that's only thing great. and i'm so i'm so happy it started out big this year because the problem with doing a christmas event is basically you have to rent santa in august oh, <laughs> yeah. people are like they're not even thinking about Halloween yet. Right. <laughs> and you're saying, no, I got to rent the sleigh and the buses oh and the this God. and the that. And, you know, <laughs> the bigger the event, the more is because everybody rents early because everybody's doing the same themed events at the same time. So. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Good to keep um, in mind, I guess, for when quarantine's yeah. over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, to do, I guess if you're social distancing with Santa, you don't have to be as strict on the details. You can have a yeah, discount beard. <laughs> yeah. Kids Maybe, aren't going to yeah. be pulling on it. They'll, they'll be a little further away. <laughs> and they'd have, a, they'd have a little fake lap like six feet away from him. <laughs> you can kiss it on that lap with a microphone to his ear or something. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> we can make this happen. Yeah. We can pull this together. Uh, uh, so cool. So I, I know we're, we're getting near the end. We're wrapping up, yeah. but I want to say this is like a, a praise. I want to tell you, Tad, and also a, a general question that will lead into that. But first off, I want to say Kate can contest that I, as a Hellboy fan, anything that anything that is not the comic book, I always have these crazy opinions about how they're not getting it right. But I truly, even though you've, you've beat yourself up with us and been honest and very generous with your time and your, and your thoughts, I truly think that you, you really got, you got, and I said it on the podcast, you don't have to go back and listen to all that nonsense, <laughs> but I want you to know that I think you have gotten outside of the comic in Mignola's own hand and another medium, you got the closest for me with the second. Oh, movie. thank you. I totally I think you nailed it. So... I want you to know that. And <laughs> and I can tell why, because you came in Keeps right more. after. Yeah. 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 I'm agreeing. <laughs> I am agreeing. Uh, but I can tell I'm, why. I'm, yeah. I, I, I can second the, the fact that, you know, even like for everyone praises the Del Toro movie so much and rightfully so, but they are a different thing. And when you ha- said earlier that you're working with Mignola trying to really capture the personality of Hellboy within the comic book world. I think that really does come through. And and 
Dave has said as such, even with, you know, outside of this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. And truly, I I can't wait to like go back and look at this production blog because it seemed like just reading through the, some of it that I, that I had today after finding it just told me so much about, yeah, how closely you guys were looking at the comic and trying to bring your own filter to it, of course, also key elements. You'll see in those, in the early posts of the blog, and it's, it is a thing if you go to the blog to make sure you go to the archives so you can go back to the very first stuff. Right. Uh, we really benefited from uh, the Atlantis production had people who, you know, basically broke down Mike's artwork, kind of things that Mike said, do I do that? You know, and it's <laughs> like from the outside to analyze things. And, and sometimes I thought, I think that's just a thing an artist does you know, you're making too big a thing out, but it still works. And it was like all these lessons on how to capture Mike Mueller artwork and, and styling, kind of like just how to play scenes that, you know, really helped us. It would really come through on that third one, but. Yeah, right. We'll dream. We'll imagine. We'll it. dream. Exactly. We'll dream. So, but yeah, <laughs> it's sure. fun. You'll see, again, go to the blog. You'll see a lot of, you know, model sheets and, and production art and storyboards. And so cool. Like even talking about like his inserts and things like that. I was just taking that, all of those things into consideration, like his emphasis on like one little detail and how he uses that for pacing. And it's just, it, it does absolutely come across. And well, then the, the, here's the thing that actually you guys discussed in the, in the first episode was the, we ended the, we did the movie and, Again, this the the studio is at said no. Every time we get scripts that are this length, they're too long. And I knew how I was because I was an animator, so I knew that I'm putting a lot more. I would break down. I didn't do this toward the end of my career because people wanted more freedom. But it was like I always made sure the storyboard guy had something to draw, literally for that shot, even if it was just said close up, you know, so I knew that I was taking up a certain amount of pages, but they wouldn't let me go past a certain page thing. And sure enough, it comes through and oh, gee, we're eight minutes short or whatever it was. So that is the whole Liz Abe sequences of that first movie was all me writing after the fact and no they were not it was not a romance because <laughs> because people people come out of the help of guillermo's movies and they're saying oh that's the romance from the movie it's like he met her when she was 13 thank Hell you was, yeah boy was born in the 50s <laughs> yeah. so it was like no we weren't going there and the thing was that the way Selma Blair was was playing it, it was the whole thing like she said, okay, maybe we need to talk about this thing or, you know, we locked lips and Abe is totally, no, I saved your life by, you know, breathing yeah. air into you. Yeah. And she goes, I was breathing your burps, you know, and <laughs> that was so fun for those guys to play. And I remember Selma gave me a great compliment. She was just saying, you know, you can write real movies. And then she caught herself and she oh, says, man. oh, I'm sorry, like that. I said, no, I understand what you mean. And thank you very much. You know? And there were, I got to say, there were guys, especially in the earliest TV animation, there was different types of writers and, and especially freelancers. It's like, oh, you're using this as a stepping stone. You're paying bills and you're really trying for live action. Yeah. But then there was always the people, and I was one of them, it was like, no, I love animation. This is what I want to do. Because at the time, and even before, it was like, I have ideas that you can't afford to do in live action. Right. Well, that's different now because you look at something like Avatar and it's like, okay, 
isn't this really an animated movie with a little bit of live action in it, yeah. <laughs> not the other way around? I mean, anything is possible now. But back then it was like, no, I really treasure animation for that. Yeah. But still, the budget differences are, are significant. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. I mean, you know, you guys, you guys could have a, a werewolf transformation and it costs you the same as if you're having a wall. I mean, it doesn't cost the same, but if you're having, no, but I get, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Oh no, we want this monster to be twice the size of the empire state building. Okay. No problem. <laughs> you know? yeah. Use the Xerox machine. Just make them a little bigger. I love it. Uh, you showed us before we started hopping on this, a great framed version of, of uh, a page from the Island. Is that your favorite or do you have a favorite Mignola Hellboy storyline that is your absolute favorite or a few favorites? No, I mean, generally the Island was, Hellboy's been through so much. I mean, I enjoy the early, and many people do, uh, of the, the adventure of I'm in a team of the BPRD. And that's, if I remember correctly, Mike thought that was the thing going on. He just started saying these weird things. And then it was like, well, the guy should say this. Oh, maybe that's an ancient language. Oh, maybe that comes from, and it's like, why am I drawing a spaceman here? And, <laughs> you know, he just let his imagination go and then wove those things into a much bigger story. So, you know, there's an issue where Hellboy dies. <laughs> so it's like, it's almost like people didn't notice it, but it's like, yeah, once you've got a harpoon through you, you're, you know, that's yeah. why suddenly he's having different kinds of adventures. And generally, I don't know, I haven't reread them in a, in a while, but I mean, I just love the, the ongoing sensibilities. I'd stopped reading BPRD because I was cut. I literally, if you want to cut down your comic book habit, be unemployed for a little bit. And, or <laughs> yeah. as I say to people, try buying a comic one at a time. Because when you're going and doing your weekly stash and you're used to throwing down 60 or $70 and that's just your thing that you do, you go in to buy this little floppy thing for four bucks. <laughs> you're, going, <laughs> you're done with it like six minutes later. Um, <laughs> should I be collecting these things? And it's like, yeah. so I dropped off and then recently I bought it all. I got over my old habits and said, I can just buy this stuff digitally. And I like blaze through all the BPRD yeah. end of the world stuff, yes. which is just, I don't know that that's the way to do it because that really warps your mind. But I just <laughs> I love all that stuff, but nothing, the best stuff I love when it's just Hellboy and something weird going on. It's just him totally. alone, whether it's dealing with mermaids or heads or, uh, you know, the, uh, actually the latest stuff I haven't gotten because, Hey, COVID. Right. <laughs> That's the thing I got to get over. It's kind of like, I could buy those digitally too, but I have all these other ones and books right here. You know? yeah. But I mean, you know, to me, it's hard for me to pick out series. I mean, if I went back and reread stuff, I, you know, I, it would hit me differently. Sure. The stuff I like the most is when Hellboy is actively up against something and, and, you know, interacting with, he's surprising himself. And we made fun of the, the crap thing, you know, when he says, oh, crap, in the second movie, it's like, okay, he's going to say crap 13 times or whatever it is in the first three minutes. And he's, he's never going to say it again in the movie. And it was easy because he was literally in crap. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's, to me, it was always the personality stuff and the, and the interaction with him and Abe and Liz, it was just different. And Liz was a, is a great character. And I had to get one of the top storyboard guys I've ever worked with did 
that opening sequence first film when he when it's the giant bat thing it was the idea is like this is the end of an adventure it's like james bond stuff it's literally it's like hey this is the last james bond adventure and he comes back and then now he gets his new assignment that was scripted very intentionally a certain way and the guy did an incredible job but he brought all sorts of stuff to it but he did a beautiful job of showing how the team works together and hellboy throws something on this side of the room and it goes and smashes the monster saving liz and it was all this back and forth and i said it's beautiful stuff it's wrong because <laughs> <laughs> my point was liz is not the human torch Liz is a nuclear weapon. And the last thing she wants to do is to let go because she doesn't know that she can stop herself. And so the whole thing was, no, you're too busy fighting the bat. It's going bad for Liz on the other side of the room. It's not about the team interacting and all of that. I mean, it was a beautiful thing he did. I learned a lot from what he did. But for that sequence, it was like, no, I have to put her in a corner and then she finally lets loose. And it's that kind of stuff that Mike came up with. I mean, not literally that sequence, but that I understood from Mike's work that, no, these aren't just these lighthearted superheroes. I mean, Abe became very popular and it was kind of like, you know, especially with female readers. And it was like, yeah, because he's a stunningly handsome fish guy, <laughs> you know, who was drawn like an Adonis figure when Hellboy was this craggy like figure. Yeah. And then to take that character and start mutating him later in the the episodes to actually say he's turning into something different. And look, he's not turning back. That is really exploring horror in in a different way than you usually would see in comics. Uh, Hellboy did start off as a pretty much, to my way of thinking anyway, this is like a really cool, but easily in this genre of superhero comics. And with a little bit of horror, it's like, okay, more of a supernatural thing. And then became this modern mythology that he, he wove of just following these, you know, strange ideas he had. And then suddenly he goes like, Oh, I could bring back that fairy who I turned into a pig has got a grudge that he's not letting go of. You know, it's that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's fantastic. So cool. You are truly a fan and I love it. That's yeah. the right. only thing is just the hearing it, you know it and love it. It's just like, of course he made the animated movies. <laughs> yeah, this is where I always feel bad when, of course, I have not gone back and rewatched all my own shows, you know, especially at Rescue Rangers. I mean, I always think of Darkwing Duck as the show that's in that genre of the most me. But Rescue Rangers, I let's put it this way. Sunday was my day off. I went into work for only four hours. Saturday was eight hours. And all the rest of the week was like, 12, 13 hours. So there's probably more of my subconscious in that show. <laughs> you know, not that I could point to anything, but I've just thought like, I don't know, but I don't want to watch that again. That's going to be scary. Yeah, but fans you're going to like, <laughs> you know. shake if you, you're yeah, get it's kind of like, yeah. And... So when, again, when fans say, what's your favorite episode and stuff like that, there's some that really stand out to me, but a lot of that has been being reminded of them. Although I, always had memories of the comic book one or one of my favorites is the first one I wrote. The real pilot of Darkwing Duck is called that sinking feeling because 
I had to write that script to show all the writers, this is how Darkwing and Goslin interact when they're at home, when they're on the adventure. Here's how she interacts with her best friend, Honker. This is what Honker brings to the team, which we actually didn't use much after that episode. Mm-hmm. Launchpad works and all of that. So that's kind of the real pilot. And I and well, now it's on Disney Plus, I believe the episode made it there. But yeah. in the when they put out DVD sets, they never put out what would have been the last set, which had you know, my favorite episode. So that never existed on DVD. So oh, I love that it's wow. out there now. Right. That's great to know. Awesome. And it's just great to hear uh, that the, you know, you talk about Darkwing not having such a like Batman-y origin story, the real pilot being characters, relationships. It's, it's, uh, it's cool. It's, it's yeah. cool to hear that element of it. It's really. Well, that's why fans always say it's, it's, always, it's just like when I was talking to a Hollywood reporter, reporter, and I used <laughs> the term, well, really Darkwing's in a different universe than DuckTales. And I was kind of saying that as a writer. It's like all the characters are different. I'm not worried about the continuity that others show. It's an alternate universe. And fans just, how could it be? Look, Launchpad is the proof of it. And it's kind of like, I, of course, decided to lean into it to say, (laughs) because it's like if you just let it go, I'd be fine. But when you try to say Launchpad is the reason that proves it, I said, no, Launchpad is the reason that disproves it. Because he's a totally different design and personality. And it's like, have and the, the thing out there is the Nerdist podcast or video cast did a, mm-hmm. an episode talking about it, saying I was wrong about doing that. And then they had me and then I wrote a rebuttal, which is it's one of those <laughs> things good. where I wrote this, this comment, but because you couldn't make paragraph breaks, it's like this solid rant. <laughs> text. And they had me on and had me do the episode, but my rebuttal was behind the paywall that they had at the time. So it's like, oh yeah, your side is out there for free. Mine isn't. Hey. But anyway, it was like... What I said to them in, in, in my written thing was, oh, Nerdist, Nerdist, Nerdist. <laughs> you of all people, I said, you aren't nerdy enough because it's like you don't understand the definition of an alternate universe. It's like because they say, well, he worked for Uncle Scrooge. He worked for a Uncle Scrooge. Yeah. <laughs> I said, Have you not seen Star Trek where the bad the, everybody had an alternate? Like a they just had little bad mustaches, little goatees, <laughs> but they all had different versions of the things. I said, It's like that, except you know, funnier. So, uh, no, that was just me. And so, you know, every once in a while, I can't help but stepping in just to stir the pot a little bit. That's I don't so do it fun. maliciously, but somebody, no. it's, it's the people who are the most self-righteous. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it doesn't change anything right? right. <laughs> so in your head, if you want to put them together, because fans have said, I have no problem with this. It, it's like everybody, you watch any TV show, you have a head cannon. And it's like, there's an episode where one of Darkwing's origins is that he went to high school with Megavolt. And people say, well, that's his real origin. And I say, you say that because you like that one more than the one where he rocketed in (laughs) from Krypton, you know? (laughs) Yeah, but that's fine. That's part of the fun of being a fan of a show is to do the fan fiction, is to to do the headcanon, to have debates about it. That's Yeah, it's it's people's way of contributing themselves to this thing that they love. 
That's really cool. And I love that you, uh, I mean, you call it stirring the pot, but you really are. That's just interacting with fans at that point. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> if it's like a modicum of antagonism that that's on a, you know, playful, fun way, that I think that that's fine. <laughs> it's, I, it's really cool. It's like, uh, and you talk about, you know, having these, co- like going to comic shops and stuff and going on like the Hellboy blogs back in the, in the eighties or nineties. It's a, it's great to hear that your sense of community kind of seems to have always been there. Like whether it's with your coworkers. Well, one of my first interactions, my big interactions when I got to learn the internet, this is back before it was the mosaic graphic interface, you know, back when, if you wanted a picture on the internet, you had to type in keys. Yeah. You had to be like coding. a picture out of it. Well, no, it was like literally people would imagine doing a, and now there are programs that will do it for you, but uh, imagine trying to build a picture out of X's and O's and Q's and L's. Oh, yeah. And you, you know, it's, that's what you would do. Anyway, there was a thing called uh, the Ranger List, which was just a, a Rescue Rangers board that were just fans of it. The only, and I, I, God, I don't even know how I learned about it. But anyway, <laughs> I was able to get an internet connection and I got permission. And, and the moderator, I said, I would like to just be able to listen to it read the board and I don't want to screw things up. So I'll stay silent. And it took her a while to figure out to decide that I was real. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually I joined in, but the only thing is it wasn't, it wasn't the true audience of the show because the fans that have come up to me 25 years later were eight years old at the time or six sure. or something mm-hmm. like that. These people were already adults, you know, yeah. watching this stuff and discussing it. That was my beginning of dealing with fandoms. And I remember having a couple of lunches with some of the guys as they came through California or something. Wow. You know, and like I say, decades later, I got to go to a convention and see people in costumes. I took my awesome. oldest granddaughter to San Diego Comic-Con once. And this was before it was so crazy. It's still plenty crazy, but it was perfect in that her, her brother was, her younger brother uh, was sick. He couldn't come. That was too Aww. bad. But she came and she just had, she did a little cosplay of just like cat ears and, and a tail mm-hmm. or something. We walk into the building and here in like two aisles in was a woman dressed up as Gadget. <laughs> and I said, and I said, can I have a picture, you know, with you? And, and you know, she posed with my granddaughter. Aww. And then I, I said, yeah, because I created the character. And that's when she saw my name tag. And it was like, they're not, you know, I got to see one of the pictures with me. And it's like, yeah. yes, my granddaughter got to see, you know, how granddad is reacting with fans. You got to see you being yeah. a super, the superhero. That's so cool. And the funny thing about it is in one of the pictures in the background, Paul Dini is walking by. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. That's this amazing. This is Comic-Con. <laughs> my other oh, Darkwing Comic-Con so story uh, Robert Kirkman, creator of, of Invincible and The Walking Dead. He, I went to to hear him talk, and it, you know, it was huge room. But the one of the question microphones was like really close to me. People said, "How do you come up with all these other characters?" Because Invincible, there are these other characters who are just other superhero teams. And he says, "Well, I took this name from here. I came up with this, and you know, Darkwing. I stole from Darkwing Duck." <laughs> and and he said, he says, "No, no, I'm just kidding." You know, he said but I'm not, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, right. And it's like, 
the microphone was right there. So you I just stood it. up, got in line behind a, another woman who, who had a question. And I went up and I just said, hello, my name is Tad Stones. I'm the creator of Darkwing Duck. <laughs> and everybody, great for the moment, the, everybody took it on faith that that's exactly who I was. And it got a huge reaction. And Robert wasn't sure one way or the other. And, and then was eventually uh, in one of my auctions, he bought some original art. Oh, that's great. Amazing. <laughs> but it was like, that story was actually on some online blog. One of the, I don't know whether it was comic book resources or, you know, one of the bigger ones mm -hmm. that just said, this is why I love comic con. Cause in the middle of oh, this, fun. the creator of this thing stands up and talks to him and all that. That's so excellent. My last convention was actually just a small one in, in January. But before that I had done a comic con in Russia in wow. October and I didn't realize it because they signed me up. They were very excited. And then they said, okay, we're going to have you like sketch for four hours and then do this for four hours. I said, well, you know, I get a little line, but I'll just, it just sounded weird to me how they're dividing up. Cause usually it's yeah. like, no, they're looking through my artwork to buy it. And I might do a sketch right there. Why are you dividing it up? And I said, what if you want to make it a big deal for signing? I go over to your booth. And he said, no, no. And finally, I just said, you guys know the convention better than me. You sure. Tell me what to do. And they really relaxed. That girl <laughs> told me, a cosplayer who was there. She like, I saw her. And I said, wow, that's a great costume. She came swooping in and left this present of, you know, some chocolate and then swooped away and it was like, oh, I wanted to thank her. And she told me later on in online after I came home, she said, no, I waited in line five hours. And I Whoa. said, oh, I can't believe five hours. I mean, it's true. I took a two hour lunch because part of it was interview and then the other part was lunch. I had, I have video of this line that goes, usually I have a table that's a normal convention table. This was like four of those. The line wow. wrapped down it and around. I had three other people working the booth. They cleaned out every piece of artwork I did, including right. some non, non Disney Inktober sketches I had. And what they wow. explained to me is that basically Darkwing Duck, Rescue Rangers, DuckTales, and I can, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, supposedly, anyway, were the first animated shows to be shown in Russia after the Soviet Union fell. Wow. The oh. fell. So they said, we had nothing like that. We, the animated things they had before were, there were no series. They were just like Russian fairy tales or something. Yeah. And they said it was great quality writing, but the execution was, you know, very limited. Suddenly these shows came on this brilliant color showing you these worlds that they had never wow. imagined and they were series they were part of the disney club which showed every weekend and then and this was a common thing people would tape the shows and then sell them in kiosks in the square where <laughs> kids would buy the parents would buy those and kids would watch them over and over again they said every child of that generation watched your cartoons awesome that's so wow. cool and and one of the nights, a couple of policemen came up. And here is a guy who's incredibly handsome, wavy hair, about his shoulders as wide as he was tall, <laughs> practically. He and the other guy come straight up. I, I just catch a glimpse of them. They're at the other end of the table. And they evidently said, when are you going to be done? 
and the guys got very nervous. They're, they're saying, oh, no, at 630, it ends and we clean up and, build, you know, they're very, and they said, no, 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 no. We just wanted an autograph. <laughs> and, so, and they said, well, once you cut to the front and, and they said, no, no, people hate the police enough. We don't need to add back to it. You know? And I wish I, I never got a picture of them. I took pictures with everyone else, but that was incredible. And, and I had people who were just shaking because I would always stand up and, and I didn't charge for pictures. At one point they said, just have people lean in behind you and we'll take a picture of you. And I said, after they explained this, because it would make it go faster. I said, no, <laughs> one, yeah. it's nice yeah. for me to get out of the chair and stand up. But I said, sure. when I take those three steps back and stand in front of this 10 foot high banner you made of my artwork, I said, that's when they talk to me. And I meet the president of the rescue Rangers fan club or somebody who's, and sometimes, sometimes there are women, sometimes there are men who are just like shaking, you know, and yeah. other times I would always, you know, I can't just smile the same way every time. So I'd say action pose and suddenly, you know, like we <laughs> yeah. come Jack Kirby poses coming at the camera type stuff. So it was just fun, but it was like, it really was life changing. I wrote a huge internet post on it to my crew because I said, yeah, they were treating me like a rock star. But what they were, I said, we all know how many people it takes to do a TV show. And I said, they were saluting your work and your stories and, and your art. And I just tried to put down everything I could think of that, that was just so amazing. So, you know, it would have been cool if that was my last con. And then I could say, you know what, maybe I don't need to do anymore. But the, the one on the little con in January was just one down in Long Beach. That's twice a year. And it was just like, the usual thing. Yeah, I sold sure, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the longest line I had was like two people or three people. And that's because one guy was just talking my ear off and I had to say, okay, let these people come up so they can look at the stuff over here. You know? But I was actually, when you get a, a visa, I was, they say, get it for, get a business visa for three years. And I said, well, the third year of the visa would be next year. And I said, that would be Darkwing's 30th anniversary. I could see coming back, but yeah, Russia has not had a great time with the pandemic either. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you know, being in a airplane for 14 hours, 12 hours, yeah. whatever it was, it's like yeah. maybe not a good use of my life. <laughs> at this yeah. Point, you know? yeah. Yeah, for you sure. You wouldn't want to have a one of those N95 masks on for 14 or so. I, yeah. Like, talk about a flight that's already uncomfortable enough as it is. Yeah, Not exactly. Alone if you're... So. <laughs> well, I'm so but glad that you did like, get to yeah, do that, it, though, before. It was just fantastic. It was such an outpouring of emotion and, and all of that. It was just, I mean, I mean, take, you know, I told you how fans interacted with me you know, my first conventions and every convention, but this is like times a hundred, you know, it's just level. amazing that they were all, yeah, because it was just all, all, and, you know, I kept hearing the same phrase, you made my childhood, you, you know, you made my childhood kind of thing. You know, and I hear variations of that here, but there it was like, it was weird, you know, that yeah. that's how much, I mean, today there is no, because practically have to be a boomer to remember the time when there was just three networks or even four networks. And that meant there's a good chance that when some big event came on, whether it was a Super Bowl, well, that can still happen. But like uh, Roots, yeah. that 30 million people watched the same episode. And they all, just like we all ran out to talk about the Watchmen comic we yeah. just read, mm. everybody talks about the next day in person and, and they're riveted. 
there's too many choices now that can't happen at most, you know, everybody can talk about binging and then you have to like stay off the, the net, stay off of Twitter. So nothing gets ruined to you because yeah. mm-hmm. I had to work that weekend. Shut <laughs> up, shut up. Um, and now, you know, and some outlets now say, no, new episodes are on Friday. You know, yeah. a year from now, you'll be able to binge them all if you just <laughs> sign up then. But for the first time out, we're going to let people talk about it and build up excitement. You know, uh, what a great story! the The thought of being the first like color cartoon for a whole group, like a whole generation, like you said, to see you just blew kids' minds. Like, there's no way. Oh, of, of way course. more. They they had to point out this to me, and I and it was like, oh my god, what must that have been like? Remember, I said Darkwing is based on Silver Age comics that had these crazy mm-hmm. ideas. And they said, Ted, we didn't see Darkwing Duck as a parody because we had never seen superhero comics. Yeah. So imagine just take all the, both the personality stuff and the, and the broad gags and all that, and now add to it the, I mean, yeah, we tried to be, a, if we're going to take over people's brain, we're going to do it with <laughs> aliens that look like hats that sit on your head, you know, but just some of those science fiction ideas that we were just playing with or time and punishment that we talked about. Yeah. They never seen anything like that. I mean, there's a huge yeah. legacy of Russian science fiction, but as far as for kids yeah. and that kind of thing, they never seen the twilight zone. They've never seen mm-hmm. twin peaks. They've never, so all of that was brand new. That's a whole different layer. Just the idea that he has a car that looks like him and or a plane that looks like him and a, and a motorcycle. Their minds are just like, like, yeah, completely blown. Yeah, because I grew up with the Batmobile and the Batplane sure. and the Batmobile and the Bat, <laughs> Batarang and all of that. And it's just like, you know, the more you think about that, the sillier it gets. Really? You create a weapon, but Okay, but it's got to look like a bat, right? Uh, <laughs> right? I want this car with my face on the front. So, I mean, just that blew my mind because it was like, I can't even imagine that impact. And that goes for oh, yeah. Rescue Rangers and DuckTales, too. I mean, all those fantasy and science fiction adventure tropes, that was just brand new. Yeah. So. So cool. Cool stuff, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I mean, only, only to be, I would love to be in that mindset, though. Just to just to oh, experience yeah, to have it for that the first time, yeah. yeah. Wow, <laughs> awesome! Makes me feel like I take all my references for granted. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm very wary of of, and I've done a little bit this episode, but you know, I'm on some more solid ground talking about Hellboy. But when you're talking about episodes of anything you've worked on, as you know, it's like. You know that show I worked in the last century, you know, and to say like, oh, yes, in the episode comic book classics, I remember or that sinking thing was a callback to. It's just like, I always feel like I need to explain a little relationship for the person who's listening to your show saying, I remember there being some sort of duck cartoon, but what? <laughs> Was that Donald? I don't think it was Donald. <laughs> wow. This has been beyond yeah, uh, I, great, Tad. Like, yeah, I, I really I can't know. tell you how, how appreciative we I'm are sure that you made the time. The time. And, yeah, it's just great. Oh, it's and been fun. 
Yeah. And, hey, I skipped over the, what I've learned to do is like, usually people say, well, tell me how I got into animation. And it's like 22 minutes later, Tad finishes his story. Yeah. Oh, we got <laughs> it. We like, got I it. I skipped through it. Oh, yeah, you, you got bored. better stuff. You got some new stuff. Yes, we got the new stuff. And it just awesome. sounded like you were born to do it. So, <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, you should. I mean, I don't want to tell you what to do, but think about writing a book or something because. <laughs> I didn't even I mean, mention the duck tattoo I have and the <laughs> chipmunk mole birthmark that I have over here. <laughs> Those are all well and documented right on the Russian yeah. blogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get that man with the big right hand. He'll do that. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> oh, that's well, amazing. Everybody, listeners, just make sure that you go to Tad's Twitter account and absolutely take a look at some of the art that he has up. Uh, you know, contribute to that auction. It's for such an incredible cause. And, uh, and everybody go, if you're a creative person at all, especially if you're an illustrator or an animator, uh, or a cartoonist to go check out just the Tad Tad's blog because it's not only very it's it's just reassuring that people at all levels people with lines around a Russian block can still feel a little like they'll have to be a little self deprecating. <laughs> there's two there's two blogs so if you could link to them both they're both on TypePad yeah. and I still pay just to keep them going but one's the Hellboy blog and that's the one that I'm not updating at all but that's definitely the one for hellboy fans to go back and really? just see the creative process of how the crew put together that show and then just a tad is the me getting angry at myself to, <laughs> 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 so. you want to read about tad beating himself up about his painting skills yes. <laughs> so you always find me generally i always put things under my name so um like on Twitter and because it keeps me honest. If I had some, it's like wearing a mask. Right. <laughs> you wear a, do a fake name. It's like, oh, I can say anything. Which is going to get me. Uh, yes, Tad Stones on Instagram, as you said. Great. Yeah, yeah we'll awesome. link to all of that. Um, I love fantastic. it. Great. Uh, I have one other last question just to close us oh, out. Yeah. Uh, you, are, you, you have such a grand history and a... Uh, uh, with this medium, is there anything currently or new that you're watching that you have no association with that you might like that's currently animation that you would suggest we watch or any, any of our listeners to be like, I, there are the two that always come to mind for me is, um, is on net, both on Netflix are, well, I will say I love the new DuckTales and they're about to come back on season three and there will be more dark wing in it. And it's just, I never miss an episode of that, but outside of the whole no connection, all that, I love the series Hilda that's on Netflix and it is such an imaginative, gentle show. And it's one of those things where, Oh no, we're not going to explain this world to you. You're just going to discover it. Yeah. In the episodes, and is so charming. It's based on a series of graphic novels. I guess the character is a little more likable in the animation than she is in the <laughs> novels, but I just love that show, and I I believe they're doing more episodes. But I've this is rare for me, but I've actually watched that show through two and a half times, something like that. To just is just so relaxed, especially these days. You can just enjoy the imagination, the whimsy of it. Uh, the mysteries, the sense of humor. And then in a more action adventure lane, but kind of in the same thing is Kipo and the 
uh, Age of the Wonder Beasts. If you K I P O and Wonder Beasts are both in the title too, and that is a heavy continuity show that they totally change the characters as they go along. I think there's is there two seasons of it? Anyway, it's one of those things where hey, I hated that guy, and now I'm starting to like him, or he was a good guy, and now he's a villain. You know, there's that kind of things. The, the sense of discovery, but again, just the imagination of this future world. It's much more science fiction in terms of, well, there was some sort of an apocalypse, something happened, and, and uh, humans are now living in burrows, and animals are all mutated, and they talk and have civilizations. Um, that's fantastic. You know, uh, love it. You know, love that show. And then, right. like I say, if you just need to just relax for a while, watch Hilda. And that's just so delightful. You know, just talking about it. Saying, oh, maybe I should give that another watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm definitely going to check those out. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for those. Uh, again, thanks, Tad, for spending two hours with us. We yeah. <laughs> wish everything you shared tonight. Have, uh, have the great rest of your night. And again, this will, uh, thank you. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you guys for having me. It's been fun. Kate, <laughs> that was probably, I mean, I could have just sat there and just listened. I tried to chime in, but I felt like it was unnecessary. Exactly, That's how much right? I was enjoying it. Yeah. That's right. I mean, before we got on the um, call with him, I was telling you, I had listened to a couple of his other interviews and I was like, you, you were like, oh, well, like we were kind of talking about what questions you're going to ask him and stuff. And I was like, honestly, I have a few prompts, but I feel like he'll be able to take it from there because he just has so much to say. He has such a rich history with animation and knows all of these people and has such interesting stories about animation at the writing level and the art level and production. So it's like, we'll just give him a couple of little prompts and I think he'll take it from there. And he really did. He's just such a cool guy. Such and it's just so cool like listening to his stories and just the very fact that he came on this podcast at all, you really do just get the sense that he is a part of this community that, like he said, he loves animation. He loves to talk about it. And he's just a fan like everybody else. And he has these great recommendations for things outside of stuff he's working on. And it, it's just refreshing to talk to somebody who is such is so cool and such a badass in the, his industry and mm -hmm. he's still like a down-to-earth awesome dude who like likes to hang out with his granddaughter a hundred percent agree with what you a great conversation it was great it was a great conversation <laughs> yeah. i would i would just to to yes and what you just said the fact that he is such a fan really shows why he did such great work that has become memorable absolutely and many people held on to is because he was a fan along with them and yeah I, he's never just wow. like cashing a check he's like cares about the thing that he's putting out and i think that's really evident in the final products the things that he put out and yeah and if, if there's anything i can take away and i hope that you and all of our listeners take away it's that whatever you're doing just be a fan of it and then put yeah. that, put your heart into it because it will pay off. <laughs> and clearly, I mean, you know, and you hear him beating himself up about like, he's like, I don't go back and watch that because I'll just, uh, I'll see all the mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you can have both of those mindsets. You can, you can care about something so much while you're making it and then still be like, 
oh shoot, I wish I did this with the spinning knife, you know, it's like everybody's gonna be their own worst critic, but don't let that stop you from making something really cool. Like, Mm. like my man, my man, Tad Stones. (laughs) Tad Stones. He's the coolest. I mean, he graced us with such gracious, his gracious company. (laughs) He graced us with his grace. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so, I'm so blown away of how. Yeah, what a cool guy he was. Cool guy he was. But yeah, Yeah. uh, listeners, if you want to share your thoughts about anything that we discussed in this, on this episode or any other episode from the past or in the future, you can of course reach out to us and we hope to hear from you. We love hearing from you. You can reach out to us at, um, ah, crap, a Hellboy podcast at gmail.com as well as you can continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter on Instagram. We are ah, crap, a Hellboy podcast. Twitter is ah, crap, Hellboy. Uh, and if you can, please, especially, this episode, I think, simply because of Tad Stones, deserves you going out of your way onto whatever pl- on going out of your way onto whatever platform you listen to, but especially on Apple Podcasts, you can give us a five star review. If that review starts with the word "boom," we will read your review right here on the show, and we'll give you a big old shout out and praise you. Um, please do oh, that; yeah. we'd really appreciate it. Brings other people to the show. Uh but that's it. That's it for this fucking amazing, wonderful episode that I am going to be. I don't even I'm going to I'm going to I'm not going to sleep just because I'm so excited about how, <laughs> how cool of a conversation that was. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Kate. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. This is cool. <laughs> Thanks uh, for fucking like talking to him you know organizing it Hell yeah, yeah uh, but you know you are like organizing it too it's great can do it yeah i feel you. like jazzed i'm gonna like run in place <laughs> <laughs> i really do feel that way it's cool uh, it's amazing what an infectious energy and delight totally um but um, it makes me want to go draw like i'm you know i'm inspired yeah. to go do some stuff yeah i can't wait to write but yeah listeners we hope you feel the same about listening and everything and we really thank you uh, for tuning in every episode and being part of a part of the show, um, thank you. And remember, we love you. You know, if you play this podcast at twice the speed, this will all actually fit into it. Um, <laughs> oh, we we do anyway. We, the, we'll go on all night with you. If we oh, have yeah. to. Have you ever encountered an unexplained hairy bipedal hominid in the woods? Have you received telepathic messages from an unidentified aerial phenomenon? If so, then you need to listen to Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm Michael McMillan. And I'm Bryce Johnson. And together with super producer... Riley Bray. We make up the Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's right. Every week we talk to actors, comedians, writers, and paranormal experts about their personal paranormal histories and share stories of high strangeness. Like the time when we talked to Craig Ferguson about the Loch Ness Monster and when a sea witch told him he had raven magic. Or the time I asked Pitch Perfect's Anna Camp her opinion on cattle mutilations. Past guests have included Rachel Bloom, Jen Kirkman, Paul F. Tompkins, Bobcat Goldthwait, and more. So if you've ever been abducted alongside five reindeer by an alien with grills for hands, or witnessed Bigfoot crawl out of an interdimensional portal, don't laugh, happens all the time, then check out Bigfoot Collectors Club on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Bigfoot Bigfoot Collectors Collectors Club, Club. you're You're here here to to believe us. us. Wait, is that how it goes?
campfire. <laughs>